so much for uh, coming along. It's a great pleasure um, to introduce Professor Christopher Jackson um, to give our uh, talk today. Um, Chris is a geologist who uses um, geophysical and geological data to study the development of sedimentary basins. And he's been described by the Joel Sock. Oh, don't say, don't say anything. <laughs> I'm going to embarrass you, I'm afraid. Um, as the leading and most productive interpreter of 3D seismic reflection data of his generation, which is a very nice um, accolade. Um, of course, uh, Chris uh, did his undergraduate um, BSc in geology um, at the University of Manchester, and then followed that up with a PhD at Manchester, also in geology as a NERC case student. Following Manchester, he took a, um, a postdoctoral research assistantship at uh, University of Manchester before moving into industry for two, for, for three years, sorry, or two years, sorry, at Norse Hydro as a research geologist, and then moved to Imperial, where he was between 2004 and 2021, um, where he moved from lecturer to professor of basin analysis. He actually took a year out also at University of Texas, Austin, in 2013 as a visiting um, scientist. Um, he's currently moved in 2021 to the University of Manchester, where he's currently a chair in sustainable geosciences. Basically, Chris is an outstanding academic. His publication record is, is, is fantastic. And I should say he's a passionate supporter of open access science and was where he's co-founder of Earth um, Archive, a non-profit preprint server, which I'm sure many of us in, in Earth are familiar with. He's mentored more than 40 PhD students, 11 postdoctoral research associates, and fellows, and he's got numerous awards. In 2021, so this last year, he was an honor, made an honorary fellow of the Geolo Geological Society of America. He also was awarded the Public Service Award for GSA. He's had the Coke Medal um, from the uh, Geological Society of London, the Geoscience and Media Award of the um, AAPG, um, the H. Burr, Steinbeck Visiting Scholars Award for Woods Hole. It's going to take me a while, I should say, to do all of this. So, Outstanding Reviewers Award, stop, stop, stop. Medal for the Joel Soft London, and the Roland Godley Award for the British Sedimentological um, uh, Research Group. He's a prodigious science communicator as well. He's given numerous lectures to the general public in schools and, of course, been involved in several earth science-focused television um, programmes, including, um, I'm sure many of you know, Exploration, um, uh, Volcano, the BBC, one, uh, BBC program, X-Ray Earth, the National Geographic and the Pompeii Prophecy for Channel 5, and, among, and, and amongst many others. And of course, the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures in 2019, thus becoming the first black scientist to do, um, to do so in almost 200 years of the history of the Royal Institution Lectures. Anyone who follows Chris on Twitter We'll also know that he's a vocal advocate of early career researchers and historically marginalised groups, and he's very active in promoting uh, EDI in the earth sciences, and also, of course, higher education in general. This work has really focused on his um, on barriers to participation in undergraduate fieldwork, dealing with anti-black racism in geoscience fieldwork, inclusion of LGBTQ plus staff and students in geoscience fieldwork. And, race, and the racial diversity crisis in the geosciences. Chris is a trustee of the Cowrie Foundation, which aims to fund 100 disadvantaged black British students through UK universities in the next decade. And I'm really very proud to say that um, following encouragement um, from, and pressure from the school's urge pod, the Cardiff University has recently announced that it will be offering three 
Cowrie scholarships from September of this year. In 2017, Chris, in an interview for the Guardian newspaper, Chris said that he knew <laughs> of no other black full-time earth science academics in the UK, or in fact Europe or the US. And it's with this backdrop that I would like to invite um, Chris to present today's seminar focused on racial diversity in UK geosciences. Are we prepared um, for the future? Chris. Thank, thank yeah, you. thank you so much. Um, uh, yeah, I better not be rubbish now. <laughs> um, yeah, no, thank you so much. It's a huge honour to be invited to come here and talk to you about anything, full stop. But um, certainly to talk about something which I'm as passionate about as I'm about all the scientific things I've done in my 17 years in, in academia. And this talk is, as Ian described, and it is kind of in, in constant with work I've done with a number of co-authors here. Natasha Dowie led this piece of work a few years ago. Um, which was published in Nature Geoscience um, in 2020. Um, this talk comes with a health warning, of course, because everything, when we're talking about diversity, inclusion, anything to do with people and our place within science and society, we need to look at it through the lens of our own individual experiences, okay? So I am one black person who's coming to here to talk to you about the racial diversity crisis in the UK and racism. I'm going to touch on some fairly difficult subjects towards the end of the talk, but it is just through my own lived experience. So in that, uh, with that in mind, it's important for me to tell you a bit about myself, okay, before I, I, I talk about the subject matter. So this is who I am, black, cishet, working class, by background, and by background is important, I think, here, because by virtue of education, often even working class people move into being middle class. But as a first generation university attendee, I did grow up in a very socioeconomically kind of uh, deprived uh, circumstance, which again is relevant to perhaps those of you following me on Twitter, <laughs> about how I view certain things and how I talk about them. Um, but who am I now? You know, now I'm middle class, right? You know, I got to university, I got educated, I earned money, you know, all those kind of things. Um, I'm in full-time employment. I'm based currently at a so-called, in brackets, prestigious, with asterisks, university. Those of you who know how I feel about badges and labels of prestige and things will know why I've kind of bracketed and, and asterisked all those things. But it's important context, I think, for, for what I'm going to talk about, my experiences. So this is where I grew up. I grew up in Derby, a uh, working class town in the East Midlands. Um, this is the house where I mainly grew up in. And, uh, and uh, you know, kind of a fairly standard um, kind of upbringing with my, my parents who were here. My dad passed away uh, a few years ago. Uh, Mum and dad uh, were from St. Vincent in Jamaica in the Caribbean. Um, they were both nurses. And so they came to the UK towards the end of the Windrush generation to work as nurses. My brother is a postman. And these are genuinely my family, by the way. I know it looks like I'm kind of like a cuckoo in the nest. <laughs> but these are all related to me, these people here, OK? And I always make the joke that my brother's a postman and these two are nurses. They were far more useful than me in society. Um, I spent a lot of time not doing work growing up. It would be fair to say I spent a lot of time doing this, playing football. This is the Derby County's ground. I used to play for Derby boys and doing athletics for my county for Derbyshire. Um, I went to a school which wasn't particularly dripping in prestige, shall we say. This is the last offered report of uh, North Baker Community School, as you'll see. It got a 16% for grade five or above in English and Maths GCSE. So this is 
a school which is ranked about, you know, in the in the lowermost five percent of all the kind of Ofsted rankings for schools nationwide. Okay, so it's 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 a school that was not without its issues. But I always think it's important to say at this point that, um, you know, what I experienced in Norbaker Community School, and how I kind of existed when I was like trying desperately to avoid doing academic work was really important, I think, for informing how I am now. You know, the people I met there and the recollections I have now as this middle class professor who's been on telly and stuff, I think it's, you know, this is, it always feels to me that that's where my roots are. And, and you know, again, a lot, of the, a lot of the way I comment on things and talk about things reflects this background. So why geology? Why did I get into geology? There's 10 points for whoever can recognize this place. Mantor. Mantor, yes. These are upper carboniferous turbidites exposed in the landslip at Mamtor in Castleton in Derbyshire, just north of where I grew up. We spent an inordinate amount of time growing up doing this with my parents. For some weird reason, my parents were avid caravanners. They were hardcore members of the Derbyshire Caravan Club. So all of my holidays growing up were spent either camping or caravanning in Derbyshire in the same county I grew up. So I never went on an overseas holiday growing up. And I guess like looking back, having spent so much time in the outdoors, my parents liked walking and, I don't know, torturing me and my brother in a caravan, basically in the rain. Maybe just being around that natural environment was important for making me kind of recognise that the natural environment was not only just really visually spectacular, but there was a lot of science in it as well. You know, there's lots of reasons why you have landslips, what turbidites are, why we have like the Pennine Arch. You know, there's lots of geology in there, and that maybe kind of seeped into me. Having got um, exit velocity from Derby, I went to the University of Manchester for my undergraduate degree and my PhD, which was in the Gulf of Suez Rift in uh, Egypt. So I lived in Cairo for about four months during my PhD and also we lived down just near, um, uh, just between Suez City and Sharm el-Sheikh, for anybody who knows the Sinai Peninsula. So we lived out there collecting rocks and making maps. And then eventually I went and worked in Norway for a company at that time, which was called Norse Hydro, now called Statoil. Uh, well, now called Equinor, subsequently stats on now Equinor, working as a research geologist on and offshore. Eventually came back to academia, University of, well, firstly Imperial College, University of Manchester as a researcher and teacher. So that's important that I kind of went out from my PhD into industry and then came back into, um, back into academia after three years. And it's particularly salient, I think, for this talk today because I announced my resignation from the University of Manchester last Thursday. So in a few months' time, I'll no longer be an academic, but I'll be returning back to industry. But I'll, I'll come back to that, that later. So why do I care about geoscience? And why am I here today to talk to you about this particular topic of racial diversity? And that's because a lot of the challenges we face across the piece, be it environmentally, economically, in terms of um, cultural cohesion, shall we say, Geoscientists have a, play, a role to play in, in, in addressing this. And you've all probably seen this post before, and it does a really good job of articulating some of the probably non-obvious ways in which geoscientists are going to be really important in the future. Some of them are pretty obvious, you know, minerals and mining resources, perhaps. Paleontology is important, thinking about the Christmas lectures, because that paleontological record gives us a baseline, doesn't it, of how life on Earth has responded to a changing climate, which is important for how we consider our place in the environment now and what the future might look like. So we're really, really important. We're really important geoscientists. But to make sure that our awesome work is applied and believed by the broader public around the world, and that's the thing, is it's a, these are global challenges we face. 
We need to be able to work with different communities. We need to have the ability to work with people who don't look like us, people who don't sound like us, people who have different lived experiences, because otherwise our, our science will remain in a closet or on a, in a paper and not be put to work to try and improve the lives of people from around the world. But we're not where we need to be, okay? And that's the kind of theme of this talk, is we're not probably where we need to be. And, and the case study I'm going to present to you today is, is principally through the lens of UK uh, geoscience, racial ethnic diversity, of course. And, you know, the argument we make here is that the reason we have such a lack of diversity is because of two things. One is because of systemic issues with higher education just in general, and then some of them are subject-specific to earth sciences, and hopefully both of those are going to be relevant to this particular uh, audience. So let's start off. What's the state of play, right? Some graphs, sorry. Okay. BME, we've heard that term, it's controversial, we can talk about that in the Q&A, black and minority ethnic groups, okay? The reason we use that term is because that is what's used in the UK census, which is for our population data we use, and the HESA, the Higher Education Statistics Authority. So we're using the terms for the, that are asked for in the reporting. 18 to 24 year olds in the UK, so primarily the age of people who would be going off to higher education, uh, Bain people account for 18.5%, okay? If we look at Bain students in UK higher education, actually they are kind of doing better than the kind of UK um, um, uh, average, or the UK number there at 20, about 25%, and this is for UK domiciled um, students. But if we start to then break that down and look beyond simply all of the BAME students in undergraduate education in UK higher education, and we look just at the physical sciences as shown here, you can see there's a significant drop to 16.8%. So the physical sciences, which includes these disciplines here, um, as you see on the bottom right, are not really attracting their proportional share of those BAME students, and geoscience sits within there. What I I'll share the, the next kind of graph there, and then, you know, kind of again, it gets worse when you look at geology. So when you take the geology out of the physical sciences, it drops to just over 10%. That number on the last count that Natasha looked at, the latest HESA data, it's about 8.8. .8. So it's dropped again since we did this work. Now, what always amazes me about these data here is that geology is the third lowest of all science, engineering, technology disciplines. It's only ahead of veterinary sciences and agricultural sciences, okay? So people who put hands in cows' bottoms and give, you know, kind of animals, kind of pills and things. We're only just more attractive than that, is another way of looking at it. But it is interesting that, you know, we're way below all of these subjects. And actually, there's these incredibly white disciplines down in here, you know, which, which have got very, very strong rural um, roots in terms of the, the, the groups they've historically drawn from. Okay, so that, that is one of the stats from this survey, this, this, this subject, which kind of goes mind. Anyway, so where are those students? So now we've looked at their students just in general, what they're studying and how, and how, and how it's distributed again across UK higher education. Um, where are those students studying? Okay, and some of you in the audience will know I have no love for rankings. Um, but what the rankings lead us to is this concept of high-tariff universities. <laughs> you can substitute that for Russell Group if you wish. Okay? So these are these high-tariff universities. If you look at black student populations in, that, in the high-tariff universities, it's under 4%. Okay? So very few black people, black students, in these high-tariff universities. 
The sad outcome of having terms like high-tariff universities, which is, I think, a term that is used quite often by the Times Higher, is that you have the concept of low-tariff universities, don't you? Because you kind of elevate some, and then you kind of leave some others sort of down in here. In these low-tariff universities, you can see it's fourfold increase in black student participation in those universities compared to the high-tariff universities. So ask yourself, why is that? I'm not going to tell the answers because I'd like you to do a bit of work, but think about why black students who are going to university, we've seen that in previous slides, why are they choosing or why are they only entering these particular academic institutions? Is it them? Is it us? And I say that as somebody who works at one of the universities on the left and has worked at one of them on the left before and attended one of the ones on the left as well. So let's now move on to postgraduate research. And so some of you will have heard of the Equator Project, which is this UKRI funded project we're working on. And this is to increase uh, black student participation in, um, and, well, black and uh, beige student participation in, in postgraduate research in geography, earth, and environmental sciences. Because of these sorts of data, okay, so let's go back to these graphs. Um, PGR, UK higher education, beige students just over 18%. Physical sciences, again, we break it down. You can see it drops to just over 12. And if we go to geology, it drops again to 10. So again, geology not getting its kind of proportional share or another way of looking at it is BAME students aren't represented as they could be or possibly even should be in geology. If we think about one of the potential barriers to that, it's the funding ecosystem we, we find ourselves in. So what we did is we looked at these data for um, looking at studentships, right? So this is for UKRI. These are the students that are awarded to ethnic minorities. The reason we use ethnic minorities is that's the way the UKRI reports it, which is different to the HESA data and different to the census. So we're equating their ethnic minorities with BAME. It's 9%. So, and I think as well that the data I heard recently, this is just over 6.5%. It's like 6.5% now. It's dropped since we did this study in terms of ethnic minority students who are receiving studentship funding for um, at all, not just geology. NERC, it's worse. It's 6%. And again, that number now, as I understand it, is just over 5 So it's dropped again for NERC. So, you know, there's, there's work to be done there. But if we then go back and again, you know, look at what the population is, and we've used here 18 to 34-year-old BAME uh, population in the UK, not in universities, just in general, you can see it's only tw it's 20% here. So, you know, again, these groups on the left here are not getting or not, you know, accessing the funding in the same way. So why is this happening? Well, why, why do we think it's happening? Well, like I said at the start of the talk, we think it's for two reasons. One is there's general barriers to participation, which are non-subject specific. I'm not going to go through all of these. I'm just going to pick up a few in red. So the awarding or attainment gap, right? So there's studies which have shown that if you take a black student and a white student and, you, and they come into the university with exactly the same grades and you try and control for um, various other kind of um, parameters, um, the black student will get half a degree uh, classification lower than their white peer, although their entry grades are exactly the same as the white peer. And that's across a range of different subjects, and it's referred to as the attainment gap. So there's some experience being had by black students who are intellectually strong enough to be participating in UK higher education as to why they're achieving less than their white peers. And again, there's an exercise for you there um, as we go through the remainder of the talk to think about why that might be. 
something I've written about a lot, and I've got a meeting with UKRI next week about this uh, in a couple of weeks' time, is um, these application systems that fail to account for these biases. And I don't know if the urge pod looked into this, but you know, if we have application systems which are assessing access to opportunity, which often correlate with financial privilege, and we're not actually having application systems which are actually measuring intellectual ability and potential, we're going to be marginalizing those groups further. Okay, so if you have a, an application, you know, it sounds really innocent, right? Have you got any previous work experience or worked in a lab before? You know, that sounds an innocent enough question to ask a PhD applicant, but think about all of the things which might mean that that person hasn't done that. I worked in a box packing factory during my undergraduate degree. So I used to go back to my hometown, work in a box packing factory, uh, packing um, stickers for Camelot, who do the National Lottery. That's what I did, and then I worked at McDonald's as well, because I, you know, I needed to raise money to go to university. I couldn't do any free, unpaid uh, research internship. So if, I, if you looked at my CV versus somebody else, you'd think, why has this person not done that? But that was my story. So we need to think a lot harder about how we do that. And that's a general thing across the piece, like I said, it's not specific to geosciences. I'm going to come back to this later on. Lack of representation at faculty level contributes to a hostile environment, because that's particularly personally relevant for what's happened to me in the last week. In terms of geoscience-specific things, you know, this, this has been talked about, you know, one term that Anjana Katwal refers to is black and brown faces in white spaces or outdoor spaces. This access to rural environments, you know, is quite an important founding experience for people who, to then come into geography, earth and environmental sciences, and I'll show that a bit in a moment. And then things like stereotypical white man image, I'll show that, and then fieldwork barriers as well, you know, the, we, we, we found often that these, these degrees on, on, a, on, a, on a large amount of fieldwork, but there are barriers that will stop people not only entering the degree, but then actually thriving in the degree and, and continuing to be earth scientists in the future because of their experiences of fieldwork. And again, that's something I've written about and talked about quite a lot. So let's have a look at a couple of those things. So if you Google geologist, this is what you see. In some future universe, I'll be somewhere on this page, maybe. Who knows? But that's what you see, right? Two things hopefully stand out to you. A lot of white people. Number two, they're all hitting things in the field at the top of the mountain, pretty much. Right? Or standing. And I love this one, like sticking, you know, with the hammer in the lava. Um, <laughs> What's quite funny is one of the black faces on here, this is from Imperial College, and this is because basically we were testing the website quite a lot like years ago, probably when we were trying to like make the website less terrible. Um, but that's one of the images you have, right? So you can imagine if you have uh, uh, prospective students, um, you know, like what does a geologist do, or who is a geologist, and they come across that, you can imagine the imprinting that occurs as a function of that. Sam Giles is at Birmingham, is a very good friend of mine. She's um, working on a project funded by the University of Birmingham at the moment to actually do, this is a warning, we're actually doing as part of that project, we're going around to all of the departments in the UK looking at what's on their websites in terms of representation, not just, you know, not just like visual representation of, of, of diversity of any sort, um, but also what's said about provision of equipment for field work, what's said about, you know, um, you know, um, um, financial assistance for uh, for required fieldwork and things like that. So there's, there's lots of signalling, I think, in the face of this declining numbers of geology applicants we've got basically worldwide, pretty much, it seems, that we need, collectively need to do, right? We're not trying to shame people. We're trying to collectively 
improve the sector and make it more appealing. Let's touch on this issue of, um, you know, the, the, some of the race and ethnicity related barriers I just referred to, and in particular this idea that access to outdoor spaces pre-university and actually um, during university is really kind of seminal to people wanting to enter our discipline and, and, and stay in it. These data came from um, the Jawsock of London, who had a questionnaire, and 65% of re respondents said that experience of the outdoors whilst growing up was a really important driver for them to enter earth, science, earth sciences. And, and I made that point earlier on with the caravan, right, in Mantle. That was certainly true for me. I'm not going to make put your hands up, but it's probably true for some people in this room, which is really frustrating because we know that geosciences isn't just about standing at the top of the hills in the cold, hitting rocks with hammers. There's lots of other ways we, we all contribute to geosciences in, in different physical circumstances. It's ableism as much as anything, right? You know, those images I showed you on the Google um, page. So if we have this issue, then we need to, we need to tackle that, you know? We, we need to, as Anjana has done, talk about, um, you know, the, the great, making, making the, the outdoors more of a welcoming space and less you know, hostile and, and outright dangerous. And I'll talk about that on the next slide to, to, in this case, black and brown faces. And I'm, and I'm posing this as race and ethnicity because that's the focus of this particular talk. But I'm, a lot of what I'm talking about is relevant to other marginalised groups. Okay, so you know, safety in the field for LGBTQ plus staff and students cross cuts or intersects some of the things that you know make those spaces safe for people in racial and ethnic minority groups. You know, not everybody has Dirtle Door on their doorstep. You know, this is right near where I live in Stockport. You know, this is the M60 road cut just around Stockport Town Centre. 280 metres of Triassic sandstone exposed in the road cut. We have geology all around us, right? We have geology in our cities. We have geology beneath our feet. We have boreholes. We have remote sensing. We have all of these amazing ways around us where we can actually bring the suburban environments into, into these, 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 earth, these rural environments into the urban environments. You know, because if you think about this if, if this, if this access to the outdoors is so important, we, we need to kind of use that, right? We need to show people how, how important, um, you know, the, these rocks around us are in our every, everyday lives. If we stay with that same data and picking up on this point of, the, of, of these spaces being dangerous and hostile, this is some work I did with um, Josh Anadu and Hendrata Ali, which was published in, um, was picked up in Nature and also in AGU um, EOS. Josh was doing fieldwork. He was doing environmental geochemistry, doing water sampling in, in, in Oklahoma State, and, and he was threatened with a gun whilst out um, in just during the, yeah, kind of uh, summer 2020. And so, you know, I talked to him in a kind of mentorship capacity because it was bloody traumatizing. He posted a YouTube video that I saw, so we had a conversation about this. Hendrata, who's been amazing at highlighting so many different issues in terms of racism in the academy, full stop, you know, we, we kind of got together and, and wrote these pieces. The point we tried to make here, and, and again, I know Vashan Wright, I talked to him about this, he was leading, co-leading Urge, was you know, when we think about um, danger in the field, we often think about <laughs> dehydration, scorpions, <laughs> I don't know, safety when driving. But to other groups, there's additional hostilities and danger, okay? So one of them is racial danger. So do we have risk assessments which are appropriate to make 
black and brown people safe in the fields? It's just a simple question. Going back to what you said, Ian, earlier on about some of my work around ODPTQ plus staff and student safety in the field, we had this trip to Amman at Imperial College, which went right up against our Stonewall Charter <laughs> um, declaration, was that we went to a country in which people would have to cover to go and do field work there as a requirement of their degree. Um, so again, when, when you start to think about the, the kind of the, the people who sit around the kind of fat middle, if you will, of our, our demographic in the sciences, when you start to think about those people, I think you can do a lot by having an intersectional approach to solving these problems. You just need to think about how it might affect this group. And oftentimes, there's a logic, or at least for me, there's a logical extension to other groups. You know, I'm, like I said, cis-het, right? So I wouldn't, like, you know, probably wouldn't think about some of these issues. But as soon as I start thinking about hostilities close to these people, these groups of people, then I think about the others. So what can be done? You know, you've seen this one before, people trying to get the view. Um, this is uh, equal treatment. We can broaden participation and prove inclusivity, right? So we can adapt fieldwork experiences and reform accreditation. The JOSOC um, accreditation review is coming soon, um, in which, as I understand it, there's going to be a reduction in the requirement of fieldwork. Um, Imperial College, I remember this so clearly. We used to boast about how during an Imperial College degree you would get 100 days of fieldwork. We used to have it on posters. And things like that, and there was nothing said about like financial assistance for students. It was a requirement, and and it was actually a selling point. And thinking back, it was really weird now. But and I often regularly said like, why do we have a hundred days as opposed to eighty? And nobody could ever answer it. Um, but now, but now that's being changed. I don't know what number it's getting to. Summer schools and paid internships. Um, Equator are, are doing some work around that as a part of um, uh, PGR inclusion. Modernised teaching. I'm not here to talk to you today about decolonising curriculums, but that's part of the pie. Okay, is making those spaces more um, welcoming. The only thing I want to say there is you can decolonise your buildings too. FYI, Henry Dalabesh, slave owner in Jamaica, same place my mum grew up. Okay, we used to have a big bust of him, big statue of him in our building, and we used to have the Henry Dalabesh Society, Imperial College, and things like that. You know, there's, there's ways that when you start to think about it that you can actually make those spaces more welcome. And I sort of talked to my head, you know, our department about this for years before I left, and eventually it all got removed. But we're still fighting about bits of that. You know, and then we can also, so these are things where, you know, these will benefit, you know, this group who are disadvantaged in this context. But there's also things which actually improve the situation for everybody. Okay, and they're just some of them there. Make application processes more transparent, support people in that. You know, geosciences has a massive gender imbalance as well. You know, a lot of what we're talking about here can actually assist in, in terms of accessing. Um, actually, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say accessing networks. I hate it because it's the deficit model, right? We're saying we need to fix women to kind of, on International Women's Day, right? We need to go and help these women to come. There's this structure, it's a bit crap, and you people need to be trained to better work in this structure. I'm a much bigger fan of just like changing the structure, which is what this is doing, you know. Removing discriminatory practices and ring-fencing funding. So I think, you know, anything we do, I'm not very generous anymore to this idea of trying to, like, do bits of this sometimes. I think we need to be a bit more tenacious about what we're doing. 
So just to finish off, I just wanted to um, talk about this final point, which um, was the thing I highlighted in bold earlier on, this idea of representation and um, people being able to see people like them in positions where they'd like to get to so that they believe they can get there and also use those people for mentorship as well. Um, on that point, if we look at Bain professors in UK higher education, it's about 10.8%. Remember, Bain captures a large group of race and ethnic identities. If we look at um, black professors, so that's the B of Bain, <laughs> it's 0.7%. Now, with my resignation last week, <laughs> that number gets less, and it gets less in a material way because of these data, okay? So, so this is a, a report from The Guardian a few years ago. And The Guardian ran one recently, but it didn't have the same, it had sort of similar stats in really. Looking at fewer than 1% of uh, university professors are black. Um, the numbers are amazing, right? 217 or so academic staff in UK universities a couple of years ago. Only 2% of those are black, so that's all academic staff. Only 140 of the 21,000 professor grade people are black. I mean, that's just incredible, that number. This number, as I understood it about a month ago, was like 125, 15 black professors, of which there's hardly any, have left since I first put this talk together. And then I resigned last week. Okay, so that number, 0.7, gets smaller very quickly. You know. The, there's not going to be many of them left. And then even more amazingly, you know, out of that 140 this time, there's only 25 black women professors. So there's some, unco I mean, there's some uncomfortable truths in here, right? There was a paper which was written a few years ago by um, um, Bernard and Cooperdoc, which looked at um, basically ethnic and race diversity in, in, in UK, US universities as well. And one of, the, one of the things that always stuck, stood out for me from that paper, which I've never really thought about, is that all of the diversity efforts that have gone in in the last few decades have benefited white women. And there's a lot of white women in the audience, or white presenting women here. It was really interesting. I've never really thought about that, because I was, you know, rightly, women are still being very poorly treated across society and in our higher education institutions. But the number on those graphs in terms of representation that climbed them steepest and benefited from the diversity initiatives have been white women. And so clearly there's an appetite and ability to improve things for certain minoritized groups. So in some ways the, the message is, 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 is positive. But this, I, I just, these numbers always just terrify me, but they terrify me even more now. Um, in terms of representation, you know, I've been fortunate enough in my job to be able to represent in numerous different ways by virtue of opportunities that have been presented to me. You know, it's introducing Christmas lectures. This is filming down near Tenby on the beach a month or so ago, um, with Kelly Acavino at uh, Nero Gongo, or even eating fancy food on the BBC, which was awesome. And, you know, a lot of those opportunities to represent can come at different levels. You can, this was our old house in London, you can sort of talk to people in your house, talk to people in your town and cities, you get to come to, um, you know, other universities to talk about issues like this, and also globally. I just wanted to show you a few examples, just because, you know, the world's a bit terrible at the moment. Um, you know, after we did it, we left the volcano, this was really nice. Um, I got an email from a four-year-old, or from the parents of a four-year-old who watched the TV show and it was on Nova, American uh, science show. This was her, she wrote me, drew this picture of me. There's this lovely card saying I was her favorite character on the, on the TV show. And what was really nice is that this is you. 
and I had the red jacket in the in front of the volcano. She drew me. She called me um, Red Jacket Man. <laughs> and then this was awesome, right? She got these like I don't think it's Lego. It's kind of like Lego, but she built this volcano, and here we are. And you know, there's the the, the forest. You remember in episode two, there was the, the gorillas and stuff. It was really cool. And that's me. I've never held a hand lens for like 30 years or 20 years. <laughs> and I absolutely hate mineralogy, but I couldn't bring myself to tell her. But that was me. That was me. Um, you know, this was nice as well. I had an email from a school teacher in uh, Chicago who had shown the TV show to um, her class. And, you know, it was kind of interesting because they said, you know, um, you don't know what massive impact seeing you. Uh, who looks like us, so black students, being an expert who is an African, but in Africa, had other students in my class. Um, I show a lot of scientific documentaries, and this is the first time the experts were taught white. So I had a dialogue with that teacher, and then I did like a Zoom session with their class to talk to them and things. So again, you know, you do a TV show, you never know what's going to happen, but you know, sometimes something positive comes out of it because you do have that opportunity to positively represent for not just geoscientists, but also your, your uh, demographic group. It's not all peaches and cream, of course, because there's always some random Twitter troll who wants to give you grief in your mentions. Um, and that was particularly true when I did the Christmas lectures, where I, um, you know, there was the announcement and I was interviewed by a few different places, including Sky News. And, you know, within minutes of that, you know, there was just lots of rage about people who, um, in this tweet here, were... Um... The reason I'm showing you this is because I'm just... There are headwinds against what we're trying to do here <laughs> um, in terms of diversity. This is really what this is about. And it doesn't make you friends, even in your own institutions. Um, and it's also very emotionally distressing. But like people here saying um, racism wouldn't exist if we didn't talk about it, because nobody would have batted an eyelid. And it's only because you're framing this as he's the first black scientist in 185 years to present the Christmas lectures. Right? There's that. There's people saying, uh, this is beautiful, this one. He may be qualified, but if anyone believes whoever makes these decisions then go out of their way to get a black professor in these times of wokeness and virtue signaling, you're kidding them yourself. This is as racist as picking a white person simply because they're white. So this is a person who obviously didn't know anything about what Ian read out before I stood up, um, who basically says I'm unqualified to, to give this lecture, right? That's their point, is they just went and found me. And I'm going to tell you why that's not true in a... In a well, I, I think I was underqualified, but it wasn't not for the reasons they think. Um, science isn't racist, that was a highlight. Um, and does he look like a scientist with ice glasses? <laughs> right, now, just to come back to the point of, um, of um, feeling unqualified, this idea of imposter syndrome, and, and like lots of people feel this, it's kind of compounded often when you're from a demographic group who always feels like they don't normally have a space at the table. And this again applies across a broader set of demographics than simply the one I represent. Um, I think it's important to have some context. So the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures, I was first approached about doing them, and I put the email here, from Don McDonald, who was head of education at the Royal Institution, on the 19th of March, and the email was sent to me at 11 minutes past two. I remember it very clearly. That was before George Floyd was murdered. Right, so the announcement about the Christmas Lectures was after the murder of George Floyd, and after we'd been marching around our towns and cities. But that person who sent that message didn't see that. So even when you're trying to do these things, people will, you know, the urge pod here or anything you try to do in your leadership capacities, people will be doubting your motives for doing it. I think it's always really important to kind of show this context. And, and yeah, 
again, I don't think, I, I wasn't the best qualified person to go through this election. There's been loads of black people before me who could have done it. But I just wanted to point out to that person, and, you know, when I give this talk that, you know, it's not true, you know? <laughs> like somebody just asked me to do it because they thought I could do it. Um, anyway, the Christmas lectures was great. Um, I had a really good time. I got to talk about um, science and I got to um, talk to the media about science and how important it was. But in that experience of talking, um, I thought it was really important as well to touch upon things which, again, were more broadly important. So I did this article for the, um, the Guardian, and they framed it like this, I'm up for the fight. And with that headline, you could see what was going to happen. Okay. Um, and then, you know, the thing that was right was, you know, you know my, the, 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 the opportunity I saw there was to talk about a broader set of barriers to participation, not just for black people, but for all of the, you know, different groups there, misogyny, transphobia, the lot. Um, you know, there's clearly been black people in the past who could have given these lectures. I talked about the fact that white male scientists have controlled the narrative around science, and that's obviously... Um, through metrics, the application of metrics, if you believe in a meritocratic system, you will select people who ultimately live up to those metrics that you've defined and therefore you'll just reinforce it. I was very terrified of giving the Christmas lectures and I don't, I don't think I talked to anybody here, but I, I was so worried about basically making a right mess of it because I'm pretty thick-skinned and getting hassled by racist trolls on Twitter and threatening emails is one thing. But then you don't want to screw it up as well, right? Because <laughs> you don't want them to feel justified in, in, uh, in, in, in what they've sent you. Yeah, tokenism, virtue signal, this idea that you're, you're unworthy. And I think as well, you know, one point I tried to make in this, and I, and I you know, maybe this is almost the last slide, I think. You know, leave you with this is, um, when we talk about science, I think we need to talk about all these other things that are messy, you know, racism misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, they're all part of the discussion because the science that's being done is, is, not gonna, is gonna be not as good as it could be if we actually restrict who gets to do it and study it. And also, we can't communicate it. COVID showed us that, right? If you look at um, disparities in COVID vaccination uptake rates between different race and ethnic groups, right? That's, I think that's a really good example of, of, of a kind of failure. And in that case, certainly amongst the black community, a lot of it was distrust in healthcare because of poor outcomes historically. So there's a, there's, there's a lot of work to be done there for this awesome science to, to go forward. Um, last slide, really. I mean, despite all of this, and Ian, you spent like seven minutes or something reading out all my stuff, right? <laughs> Whatever. And you can make of this talk about me as you do. But it doesn't matter, right? Because there's always somebody who just will reduce you. The first thing they'll see is a black person, and they'll just not hear any of that, rightly in a way, right? I mean, I should be not treated any better than anybody else, but all they will do is do this to you, right? And, and that's the kind of sad thing I've talked to people about before, is it's very hard to educate yourself out of racism, is the way I describe it. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things when you walk in a room, you are the black person. I have a friend who's gay, he says, actually, when I walk in a room, I can cover and pretend I'm straight for as long as it's needed until I leave that room. So he said the discrimination, I never really thought about it like that before. Um, but, you know, people will do this. Um, and then just to finish, you know, I went to Stanford a few years ago. I walked in as a, uh, to give an invited talk to the dean, and the dean said to me, um, are you here for the PhD interview? And uh, for one glorious moment, <laughs> I thought about saying yes. <laughs> and I didn't. And it was 
incredibly awkward and I kind of <laughs> and then subsequently to that we had a conversation about it but he was just mortified by it right but he was just like I don't see many black people and then he, at one point he said to me he said I've read loads of your papers as well I just didn't know who you were <laughs> so uh, yeah you, <laughs> somebody also said it's because of how you dress Chris and I said trust me if I was wearing a suit and I walked into Dean's office as a black person they'd definitely think I was there to the police to interview um, so what's next you know yeah we need to keep fighting you know we need to keep fighting we need to keep thinking we need to keep talking discussing about things we need to be aware of our look and privilege and all of this even if we are in these minoritized groups because although I'm black I made the point earlier on I, I am a man right so uh, some of the gender-based discrimination that some of the people have suffered I had less of that and I think it's worth fighting, you know, so maybe these characters in the back of my car here will eventually come into higher education in a, and find it in a better state than, than it is now. So um, thank you very much for your time and I'm happy to take questions if we have it. Got time. Wow, thank you so much. That was a, a really fantastic and inspiring talk. And, you know, so um, I'm going to uh, open it up to questions for Chris. He's kind enough to answer, answer any questions. Anything from the audience? You know, there's a lot of food for thought in there, of course. Anything from the audience? I, I might start, I yeah. may then, just by asking, and this comes from a, 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 one of the white professors you yeah, yeah. talked about there, the power of ally, allyship in yeah. the context of, um, you know, kind of, the whole the whole gambit in terms of EDI. What's your what's your take on that, and how does that you know has that impact you? And you know what you know what is the power of allyship? I mean, it's, it's it's hugely powerful. Um, I think you know we went through this a couple of years ago, didn't we? When we were all marching around the streets, like listening, learning, blacking out our Instagrams. You know, I think I think that's you know I'm being a bit cynical, but I think there's real value in that in trying to understand what some of the issues are. But at some point, you have to buy it, right? You have to go and do something about it. And I I found that's the biggest hurdle to cross. Um, so just as an example, going back to the PhD applications, everybody wants to be anti-racist, right? But nobody wants to change the questions on a PhD application form because we live in a meritocratic system, and this is how we're going to hire the best people, and so on and so forth. You know, if you, if you want to show allyship at some point, I think for those of you who have the most protection, I appreciate that, you know, undergraduates maybe don't want to be leading this particular charge, but the more senior privileged people, they, they need to be using their platforms to do that. I chose to do that as a black person, even with the risks posed to me. And I, as some of you know, received some pretty horrendous things through the post, um, you know, and to, the, to my house. Um, because I think I think it's worth it, but I, I think I think you do have to you do have to do something about it. I, I find it hard to talk about because you know, and not insignificant contribution to me leaving my job is the fact that I was subject to racist uh, racist abuse, right? And I have enough self-respect to not put up with that. I also had the opportunity to leave, which is really important. And so I've seen, I've seen, I think I find it hard to talk about because I've seen the expressions of allyship and then I've just seen how terrible people can be when they need to intervene, right? So again, I don't want to say, I, I, I won't say too much apart from, you know, if you see, uh, what's the word, active bystander, if you see somebody being racially discriminated against or any sort of discrimination, you need to do something about it. If you wave it through, it all just blows up, 
and, and you know that's all that's all I'll say. But like to, just to just witness people's inability to actually show the allyship, which otherwise they're doing on social media, right? And they're they're, they're doing all the lightweight stuff. But to challenge for you, Ian, to go and challenge a colleague who says something, it's really hard, isn't it? Well, sure. It's like talking to somebody at the dinner table, a racist auntie or something, or a, a parent you don't agree with, or a sibling who has some like views on whether trans women are women, right? You know, like at some <clears throat> point. You know, we, we need to try and engage in that, and that's I think where most of the um, the kind of um, the, the, the advances will be made, because the people who are in those groups, you know, it's just too upsetting to do it all the time. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Liz, how do you stay motivated? Well, I think drink. Well, Ian, yeah, yeah, how do I stay motivated? Um, you know, I think, like, looking at the future is, is a useful context. I think, you know, not just, you know, personally, you know, just in terms of your family, but um, hoping that the future is going to be better and, and believing it, it, it can become better. Is, and, you know, some people might call that delusional, you know, and, and to some, in some degrees it might, might be. Um, I think recharging is important, like stepping out of things. I say this, I'm terrible at it, you know? But I, I run a lot, I cycle a lot, I, I, I work nine to five, I don't work weekends, I don't work evenings, I, you know, I, I, I have to set some boundaries which allow me to do my work and let me engage in some of these, I was gonna say non-work related things, but, but my point on that second to last slide is this is exactly the thing that allows us to do science is, is making space for people, I think, rather than just the technical things we, we do. I, find, I do find it hard. I do, I do find it hard. But, um, yeah, I, yeah I, I, think, I think at the moment I'm probably in a bit of a lower spot because, you know, of what's recently happened. Um, but, uh, you know having questions like this it's it's good and knowing the urge happened here and you know i think i think it, it kind of refreshes you and and elevates you again to go back and, and fight and it's and you know going back to like my upbringing you know <laughs> caribbean people have a lot to say often and they want to kind of you know this, the, my parents were very they were, they were very outspoken and they believed in doing the right thing at the right time and 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 that and, and and my school upbringing as well was really important so i just can't stay quiet about things <laughs> How much do you think uh, that there's this assumption that it's you know, if you're a black academic mm. that it's your fight and it's really oh, not absolutely fight, right? yeah. it's everybody's it fight is, it in, is. In, in, in that it, context it absolutely is yeah I mean you look at it as something as simple as workload models right so um, you know this engagement stuff or doing things for being a swan or doing things for the race policy charter or doing things around the Stonewall chartership application or something like often you find those minoritized groups are in there. You see an overrepresentation of black people in the race equality charter self-assessment teams. You see an overrepresentation of women in the Athena Swan application teams, right? And and and, and it, you know, and in so, and in some ways I sort of don't mind that if it's recognized and valued by institutions in promotions frameworks or appraisal frameworks or or whatever it is, right? You know, we're seeing it this morning on Twitter, you know, the gender pay gap's just brilliant. If you've not followed it, it's just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. But um you know, we, we see these pay disparities, and they arise because, you know, people are doing this thing over here with race pay gap. Don't forget, it's about 13% in the UK universities. We're talking about gender pay gap today, rightly, but there's a disability pay gap to 9%. 
you know, we, we end up kind of with all these people over here doing this kind of non-academic work, whilst everybody over here in the, in the flat middle is making hay with grant applications and writing papers. And, we, and I think, you know, for higher education institutions to function, for society to function, we need to reward all of those activities because a higher education institution wouldn't work unless we had those people doing that work. And, we, and, we, and we're super shit at, at, at recognising it. We're getting better and we're talking about it, but we need to realise that the things that keep the doors open in our institutions are, are students. I mean, we marketise to death now, right? So we need students to come in. So people who do open days on Saturdays, people who, you know, do the admissions interviews, those things should count as highly as a one in 20 grant success, or one in 10, or whatever it is now, right? That's, that's my point, but I don't, I don't. Nobody put me in a leadership position, probably for having these views. No, great views. <laughs> um, any other questions? Oh, here's one. Oh, oh sorry, I can get this. Oh, I forgot this. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Perfect. Yeah, any other questions from the floor? Oh, just closed it off. No, 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 it's because I can't um, see yeah. it. Let me just... Here we go. One thing students who identify as being of an ethnic minority background tell me is that they feel their parents pressure them and similarly for their friends into careers that have defined career pathways. So as a generation lag, yeah, this is brilliant. So, did you see on the slide where I said there's discipline-specific issues? Cultural expectations was one of the things I listed. And um, Rue, this is exactly that point. So, when we did this study, and you know, some of the people in in, um, in the study were uh, were from uh, basically South, like Southern, like basically India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. And they said, yeah, this idea of engineers, doctors, lawyers, there were a series of disciplines which was quite hard culturally to break out of and to challenge their parents about. Um, because geosciences is like, what's geoscience, right? Physics and chemistry were still seen as being edgy enough. Um, so yeah, there's absolutely room, there's that barrier. But again, the, the, you know, we can't go in people's homes really and tell them that they need to allow their sons and daughters to do the discipline we love, but we can still promote our discipline to, to that to that group of people and make them feel welcome when they're there, so then we can still retain the, the few people we have in those groups and use them as role models for other people. So, yeah, it's a very good question. So, any chance your, oh, Tiago, any chance your daughters will be geologists? Will you foster them into geology? Um, like just brainwashing. <laughs> uh, I don't know Tiago, to be honest. Um, they asked me a bit about geology, they asked me a bit about what I do. Not really. I always say about my daughters, you know, middle class aspirational parents are like the worst, right? But I just want my kids to be people I want to have dinner with. That's what I always say. So whether they end up as geologists or they end up as postmen like my, you know, like, or, you know, postal delivery workers like my brother or nurses like my parents, I don't really care. I would love it if they were geologists, because I just think it's like the most amazing thing in the world to do, isn't it? It's so cool. And you get to travel and eat and like look at rocks. But yeah, it's not my, it's their path, not mine. John. Yeah, so a related question, Chris. So do we see similar percentage patterns in things like arts and humanities in terms of Ooh. representation? Um, my understanding is, I don't know about arts and humanities. I certainly know for things like um, sociology, some things in psychology, then obviously into the medical and health. You know, the representation there is significantly larger than in geology for BAME yeah, students. Yeah. 
But for arts and humanities, I don't know. My suspicion would be it would be very low mm. in things like arts, history, maybe as well. Yeah. Um, I don't. I, I, my my gut feeling was is it be as bad as if not worse than than geology. Yeah. Um, okay. Thanks. That I the reason I'm hesitating is because that's one thing. Whenever we raise this, sometimes in these senior leadership team meetings, people go, "But it's worse elsewhere." And uh, I know that's not your question, but oftentimes. Geology has made itself feel better by saying it's kind of worse down the road. And, and I, you know, I don't really care about that. I just want people to come and study rocks, really. And so the more people we can get to do that, the, the better it can be. Yeah. Any other last question? There's, I see this one. Oh, yeah. You talked about having black and brown faces being more present in green and outdoor places. What was your experience with your parents camping around Derby? Yeah, Derby's a very, very white place. Um, just to town, it's the Midlands. Um, when you go out into the peak distance in Derbyshire, it is like super white. Um, so I was too young to really recall whether we were subject to any racism in the peak district. So that answers the question there. I don't know what my parents' view is on this, and I sh it's a good question, Ernest. I, I, I will ask my mum when I next see her. What I do know is, I, um, again, I'm kind of, I find it hard to say, but um, I find it very hard to go into North Derbyshire, as, even though it's my home county, to go into the Peak District. Because um, I've been on walks there, in the, even since I moved there in the last year, where people have sort of said, you know, where are you from, where are you going to? And yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's hard to say that your, your home is a hostile place to you, in a way. Um, because there's just no, you know, some of you might follow Muslim hikers, and their story on social media is really inspirational, trying to make, you know, a kind of critical mass of people to go on a safe walk together so they don't get stared at. You know, I get it. I completely get it. Um, I'm just too brash to wait for anybody. I'll just go and <laughs> I don't care, but it's, it's still pretty painful to, to have people stare at you. Um, I'm yeah. going to draw it to a, a close there Good. and say thank you so much, Chris. That was a fantastic talk, I'm sure. The, you know, the influence and the, 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 you know, the, the change that will hopefully come from these sorts of presentations will, you know, will, will be there yeah. um, for you and the, as a legacy, I really do. And I, you know, I know you're leaving academia. It is a sad loss for higher education, for sure. Congratulations, and I know it's a really exciting opportunity for you, so we do wish you well in, 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 in your you. new job at Jacobs. So yeah. um, I'm just going to join together and say thank you very much, Chris, and then remind you about this evening's yeah. uh, uh, public lecture, 6.30 in the Wallace Lecture Theatre. Um, Chris is going to talk to you about um, volcanoes yeah. uh, this evening, so please come along and, and, and join Chris for that presentation as well. But, you know, please, let's join together and just say thank you so much for Chris for... Really inspirational talk. Thank you. Thank you.